Now we're going to ask Dr. Ferguson to come and read to us from the scriptures. And then after that, I'll bring a few announcements. Then we'll sing another hymn. And then we'll ask the Lord's servant to minister to us. Thank you, Reverend McLaughlin, for the invitation to the harvest services this evening. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. We're in a time where a lot of people are discouraged and look to the future with very little hope. And if you look around you, there is no hope. If you look in the wrong direction, the Bible tells us to look up, not around us. And old Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3, when he looked around him, he had a sense of hopelessness. But then he looked up and he found hope. We'll pick up our reading at verse 18. Jeremiah is speaking and he says, I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. And God will bless that beautiful reading of his own inspired and infallible words. Amen. Well, again, we thank you in the Lord's name for coming. We thank the Lord's servant. It's great to have him. And we're going to ask him now to come and preach. And after he preaches, then he'll close with the singing of the last hymn and the benediction. Thank you once again, Reverend McLaughlin, for this invitation. I see one of my father's sisters sitting down in the congregation. <laughs> greet her. I was preaching in a church yesterday, and a man was there who I hadn't met for nearly 40 years, and he was with my father the night my father was saved in the old Ravenhill Church all those years ago. And I was telling him through he and his brothers bringing my father to that church service. Uh, my father was the first one saved of a family of seven children. And uh, five of the siblings were then saved. My grandparents were saved. Uh, and my father's five children were then saved. Uh, and now some of my father's grandchildren are saved. So four generations of Christians have come from the one soul that was saved all those years ago 
on the Ravenhill Road, and I was glad to tell him that and encourage him in the Lord. Well, let's turn to Lamentations chapter 3. This evening, tonight, is the harvest season. It's a season that God has appointed for us to look back on the past year and reflect on the goodness of God to us as his people, the goodness of God to us as families, as churches, and as individuals. And we want to do that this evening. Let us pray first. Our Father, we thank thee for this thy word. The entrance of thy words giveth light. We ask that thy light would shine upon each and every heart, that you would speak to us, we would leave here saying, God has spoken to me personally. God has touched me. God has changed me. May we leave here saying, I'm more like the Lord Jesus Christ than when I came through the door. Lord, make us a happy people, a joyful people, a thankful people at this harvest season. For these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Now, the book of Lamentations, by its very title, gives you the impression that it's a very negative book. To lament is really not a positive expression, is it? And Jeremiah, when he began to write the book of Lamentations, was feeling extremely sorrowful. In fact, that's probably an understatement. Jeremiah was broken as he witnessed the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the tearing asunder of the kingdom of Judah. And as he sat in the ashes, looked out and saw the whole of his nation torn apart by the Babylonians and the cream of the nation taken away almost a thousand miles northeast to the city of Babylon, Jeremiah lamented. And he felt as low as he ever felt before. And in the passage we read, he says in verse 18, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. That's how he felt. He was just being very candid with us. And the tone of the first two and a half chapters of the book of Lamentations is really a tone of total despair, hopelessness. And maybe that's where you are this evening. As you look around this land, you look around your neighborhood, you say to yourself, things are not what they used to be. Of course, if we look across the water to Westminster, uh, we feel ashamed, don't we? of the leaders that we have in this nation. If we look up the road to Stormont, we don't feel any better. And that's the sense of the people of God today, discouraged, hopeless. And no doubt many of you were familiar of that census that came out not very long ago, where it said that one in five, more than one in five of the people who live in this land now say I have no interest in any God I have no religion I have no belief even in a person greater 
than myself. And we're living in a time where, as a Christian, it's so easy to be like Jeremiah, to be not just discouraged, but to look around us and feel nothing but hopelessness. Well, thank God Jeremiah didn't stay in that place. Because as I said earlier, he stopped looking around him at the destruction of his nation. And instead of looking at everything from the horizontal, he began to look from the vertical. And as he looked up, he saw that God was not in a panic. He saw that God had not lost control. And he tells us in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21, this I recall to my mind. Suddenly, he began to understand who really rules the world, who's really in control, and who this person is and was that's reigning and ruling over not just Jeremiah's life, but over this world. And he says, the moment I begin to recall in my mind, he says, therefore have I hope. Now, what's his hope? Verse 22, he says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. He recognized even the fact that he's still alive, that it's the mercy of God. Sometimes we forget that. There's not a one of us in this room who deserves still to be here. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And yet the fact that God has still kept you in the land of the living, saint and sinner, is the mercy of God to you. He has a purpose and he has a plan for your life. And Lam Jeremiah says it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And then he explains a little more, because his compassions fail not. Now you notice the little word compassion is in the plural in our English translation. And that's because in the original, it's not in the singular. It's in the plural. God's compassions to his people are not reflected in a singular moment or a singular event. God keeps pouring out compassions upon us every day, every week, every year, every decade. He's a God who's full of compassion and he loves out of mercy to keep extending compassion and compassion and compassion. And then he says in verse 23, they are new every morning. I like that. What does that teach us? That teaches us that God provides grace for every day, not just for yesterday, not just for a year ago, not just for when we were saved, but God's grace and compassion is prepared by God and extended by God every moment of every day. We don't have to live on yesterday's blessings because God has prepared a blessing and a compassion and a grace for today. It also teaches us that God's compassion and God's grace is never early, but it's never late. It's just right on time. 
He knows what to send into our lives to sustain us and provide and protect for us every moment of every day. And his compassion is so great that it says, great is thy faithfulness. I'm so glad it didn't say, great is our faithfulness. For you wouldn't find much hope if it said that, would you? It doesn't say there, great is the church's faithfulness. Because again, the church of Jesus Christ is never fully faithful, is it? But because it says, great is thy faithfulness, Jeremiah found hope, found encouragement at his lowest point. And he said this to himself and to us in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. My portion. Reminds me of the man who went to, the famous actor, went to his town hall to perform And at the town hall, he said to those who were there, the great crowd, he said, shout out something and I'll sing it or I'll act it out. And a man shouted out Psalm 23. An old man that was sitting near the front. And the actor said, well, I I know the words. And he began to sing, the Lord is my shepherd. And he sung it with a beautiful voice. When he had finished, everybody applauded in the audience. And then he looked at the old man and he said, Sir, would you like to come up to the stage and sing it as well? The old man got up, bent over with age, and in a very raspy voice, he sung with a wonderful pathos, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And when he had finished, the whole audience rose to applaud with a far louder applause than the actor had received. The actor got up and he said, I have to acknowledge there was a difference between the old man singing and my singing. And the difference is this, he says, I know the psalm but he knows the shepherd. Notice the difference. He knows the shepherd. And Jeremiah says here, the Lord is not just a portion, he's my portion. And we see the difference. When you as a child of God can face the world, the flesh, and the devil every day and say, the Lord is my shepherd. He's with me. He'll he'll guide me. He'll protect me. He'll preserve me. He'll provide for me and for my family. And when you can say like old Joshua, what a greater blessing. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And the Lord, you know, he doesn't just promise to protect us and provide for us. He promises to be with us right to the very last bend in the road. Remember what King David said in that Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear what? No evil. Why? For thou art with me. 
right to the very end. The one who said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee will never leave thee. The doctors will leave you. Your family may even forsake you. But the Lord will never leave thee. That's why Jeremiah could say that day, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. That's where he says, that's where I see the hope for the future. And in Jeremiah's case, he didn't live to see the nation brought back from exile. But the God who had promised 70 years after that moment, the Jewish people would come back from Babylon. Read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. What do we discover? When old Jeremiah was dead in the grave, in glory, God moved on Cyrus, a most unlikely individual, to send the Jewish people back home to the nation of Israel. And there they arrived to the same place that Jeremiah was lamenting 70 years later. And there they offered up sacrifices And they said, just like Jeremiah, great is thy faithfulness to us. Today, of course, if you head to the land of Israel, what do we discover? After nearly 2,000 years of wandering all over the earth, the Jewish people, battered, bruised, facing pogroms and holocausts, what do we discover? Who lives in the city of Jerusalem? who prays at the temple mount, the Jewish people. And every time a Jew stands up there in the city of Jerusalem, what they're really saying is this, great is thy faithfulness. God keeps his promises. God can be trusted. God will honor his word. And yet, when I say all of this, the sad thing is that so many of God's people are ungrateful. So many of God's people are unthankful for the goodness of God. Why is that? Why does our faith falter? Why do we forget the faithfulness of God? Why do we often discover that the more God gives us, the more we forget him? Well, the answer goes back thousands of years ago to the Garden of Eden where our first parents were put in that perfect environment, where they had a perfect marriage, in perfect health, no sickness, no disease, no decay, no sweat, no work to do beyond just dressing the garden. And in that perfect environment where they had a perfect relationship with God, the old serpent came in. And he began to question the goodness of God. He began to talk with Eve just to see is she in any way unhappy with what God has brought into her life, what God has given to her. And you know, ever since that, the favorite two words of Adam and Eve's children have been these two words, if only, if only, if only I had this, if only I had that. If only things were different, I'd be happy. I'd be satisfied. And all of humanity, ever since that day, has been unthankful 
But then I want you to notice as well that even Christians can become unthankful. If you turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes on this very subject. And he says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. And then he says this, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul says, there's something I had to learn as a Christian, as a child of God. There's a discipline that I had to master. It's something that didn't come naturally to me. It's part of the old nature that I had to learn to bring and put down. And it's this tendency to be discontent. He didn't say, I, I am content. He says, I have learned. I have learned to be content. Where was Paul when he was writing these words? He was in prison. In fact, if you go to Rome today, to the Mamertine prison where Paul was, you'll discover it wasn't like Magabri or the maze. The Mamertine prison was just a hole in the ground. And what they would do, they would bring the prisoners and just drop them in. Right next door to the Mamertine prison was the sewage works. And the ground where they would be would always be damp and cold and filthy and full of infection. That's why Paul when he was writing to Timothy, asked Timothy, bring me a coat, bring me a cloak. Whenever the sewage works, uh, the rain came down in a bit of a storm, the sewage works would just overflow into the prison and often the prisoners would drown. That's where Paul is writing his epistle from. And he says, in this awful environment, full of infection, full of danger, full of discomfort. He says, I have learned. I have learned, he says. God's had to teach me that in whatsoever state I am, whatsoever circumstance I am, I have to discipline myself to be content. The word content there means contained, fully contained. In other words, uh, I have to discipline myself to teach myself that in God I have everything I need. I don't need anything more. I am blessed with everything that he thinks I need for each day. And Paul says, I have to learn that, and you have to learn it. But then Paul also teaches there's a cure for being unthankful and discontent. And you know, the weeds of discontentment have to be rooted out. You know, like a gardener. My wife, she loves to garden. I have to admit, I don't. And I, the best I can offer is I cut the grass for her. But she loves to go out into the garden and dig up the weeds. And you know, if you're a gardener, that the only way to deal with the weeds is to dig them up at the root. 
And it's a constant battle to stop the weeds growing and growing and growing. You have to keep going out day after day to keep digging up the new weeds that come. And you know, in the Christian life, you've got to do that because the devil keeps coming and sowing the weeds of discontentment. Now, how did Paul learn to be content? How did he learn to root up the weeds of discontent? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is this. Count your blessings. Count the blessings that God has given to you. Count what he has given to you, not what you don't have. And Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, you know when people read the Bible, or maybe when someone reads it in the church, there's a tendency just to let the word flow in one ear, as we say, out the other ear. And Paul, being a wise pastor, he understands that it's so easy for those in Philippi that are sitting there listening to this epistle being read out. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, amen. Then quickly move on. Forget about that thought. So he repeats it the second time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, just in case you missed it or you fell asleep or you tried to forget it too quickly. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, I say rejoice. Rejoice. Now, that's easy to say when things are going well. But what, I, what about when things aren't going so well? It's easy to rejoice when you get the letter saying, you've got a promotion. You passed the exam. It's easy to rejoice when the doctor says to you, all clear. But what, when he, what happens when he says, I'm sorry. I have to tell you. There's a problem. When the letter comes and says, I regret to have to inform you that the job is no longer there. What are you going to do then? What is Paul's advice? Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Not, some, not just the good days and the happy days, but in the hard days, in the difficult days. Now you may say to me, well, that's easy for you to say, preacher, but you don't live where I live. And Paul doesn't live where I live. Well, it's very interesting. If you turn to Acts chapter 16, you'll discover that the apostle Paul practiced what he preached. He didn't just throw out advice, but he lived the same message that he preached. Those of you who know your Bible will know that in Acts 16 is the account of Paul in Europe. This is the first time the gospel is taken to mainland Europe. And the chapter preceding this, the apostle Paul was in what we call today Turkey, Asia Minor. God was using him. And souls were being saved and churches were being planted. And Paul, he had a desire to go not just up into the central part of Turkey, but off into the northeastern part to reach the lost there. But God said no. 
One night, Paul got a vision, a Macedonian call to leave Turkey or Asia and head to the west, across into Europe, to what today we call Greece. And Paul, being obedient to the heavenly call, went off to the city of Philippi. No doubt he thought to himself, when I get there, after such an amazing vision, there's going to be a great revival. But what does he discover at Philippi? There's no crowd waiting to hear his message. In fact, there's just a few women down by the riverside. And a short time after he begins to preach to those women, Paul finds himself arrested, beaten, severely beaten. No doubt the blood is running down his back. And then he's taken in that beaten up state and cast into the prison. In fact, the Bible calls it the innermost part of the prison. That's not the nicest part of the prison. That's the part of the prison for the worst prisoners, where there's no natural light, where all the rats and all the disease is at its high point, and the dirt and the filth will be at its worst. If that's not bad enough, we're told his feet was fastened in the stocks. If you go to Dromore, the center of Dromore today, you see the stocks where they used to tie up the criminals. Well, those aren't the type of stocks that Paul is describing here. The stocks that he's describing is ones that stretched your limbs so that you were permanently discomforted, couldn't sleep. So here's Paul. Think about this. He's in the inner prison the filthiest, darkest part of the prison. No doubt he hasn't been fed. His back has been cut to ribbons by a tremendous beating. His infection and fever must have been at its very highest. And his feet are dragged or pulled apart by the stocks so he can't even find a measure of comfort. And here he is alone with Silas. No friends. No lawyer. No money. No powerful influences to get him out of the jail. And no doubt the devil comes to, to his ear and whispers into his ear and says, Paul, you're going to die here. Paul, you're a fool. You had all those blessings in Turkey where God was using you, and you imagined something, and in this act of foolishness, you went over into Europe, and now you're going to die, and nobody cares about you, alone, cold, hungry, in agony. The best you can hope for is tomorrow morning they chop off your head quickly. What will Paul do? How will Paul react in such a situation? The man who told the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. How will he react? Well, let's see. Acts chapter 16. In verse 25. It says, and at midnight, 
Oh, they've been in a few hours. Paul and Silas, both of them, prayed. Now, we can understand that bit, can't we? You say, well, these are Christians. These are mature saints. They're going to pray and pray, God, get me out of here. Save my life. But it's what comes after the comma which surprises us. Because it says this, they prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, if you have your Greek New Testament, you'll discover that the verb that's used there is what we call the present continuous tense. In other words, is the idea of they began to sing and then they sung and sung and sung and sung and sung. Praises unto God. Rejoiced over and over again. Why were they rejoicing? Because as Paul tells us himself in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he understood that all things work together for good. All things. His imprisonment, yes, all things. His pain, yes, all things. That God was in control. That God was faithful. That God was ordaining that moment for his own sovereign glory. And because Paul knew that, he didn't understand all the detail. He didn't understand that there was going to be an earthquake. He didn't have that knowledge. That the jailer would be saved. He didn't have that knowledge. But what he did know, he knew God. And he knew God had a purpose and a plan in his suffering, in his pain, in his situation. And he was able to pray and sing praises over and over again unto the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice. Can you do that? Old Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, was once robbed on his way to church. And the robbers took all his money. When he arrived, beaten and bruised, the people were wondering, how is he going to react to this situation? Matthew Henry stood up and he says, I want to thank God today for what has happened to me for a number of reasons. Firstly, he says, I want to thank God that I was robbed today, but I was never robbed before. Secondly, he says, I want to thank God that although they took my wallet, they didn't take my life. Thirdly, he says, I want to thank God that although they took everything I had in my wallet, it wasn't very much anyway. Fourthly, he says, I want to thank God that today I was robbed and I wasn't the robber. Isn't that a good attitude? That's how you rejoice in the good days and the bad days. That's how you can be like the Apostle Paul and say all things, all things work together for good to them that love God. But then not only must you count your blessings, that's part of the antidote 
to getting rid of the poison of discontent and ingratitude. The second thing you have to do, and very, very briefly, is this. Remind yourself that this place on earth is not your final destination. You know, if I go around this evening and ask, where do you live? People will say, well, I live in such and such a road, in such and such a house number in Duff, or Belfast, or somewhere else. Well, if you're a child of God, you know that's not where you live. That's just where you lodge. Because as the old hymn says, we're just a passing through, isn't it? This earth is not my home. This mansion that I live in here is not my eternal home. That there's a better place around the corner. There's a better world to come. A world where there's no pain, no suffering, no sadness. Many years ago, there used to be an advertisement on the television for beer. And it showed a man sitting beside the riverside fishing. And as he was sitting with his little fishing rod, he had a tin of some type of alcohol. And the condensation was just running down and the little caption came up and said, this is the best it can be. And you know, for the ungodly, that's so true, isn't it? Whatever they live on earth, that's the best. But for us, the child of God, we know this is the worst. This is the worst it'll ever be for us because as soon as we close our eyes and open them in glory we open them in not just a better place an infinitely better place over there that's why the apostle paul says it's what for me to live is christ but to die is gain it's great gain and every day you need to get up and this is one way to deal with an unthankful spirit is to remind yourself, this is not my final destination. No matter how difficult life may be today, it's just a staging post. It's just a temporary lodging until I throw off this old body and have that new body like unto his body in that great glory worship service in the sky but then thirdly the thing you have to do in order to deal with this ingratitude unthankfulness that rises in all of our hearts is to discipline yourself to do the will of God where he puts you if you go back to Philippians chapter 4 and I'm almost finished in verse 1 Paul says this therefore my brethren Dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown. He then says this So stand fast, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. In other words, Paul says, Wherever God has put you, whether it's a mother, a wife, a husband, grandfather, wherever he's put you in the workplace, wherever local church he's put you to serve him, wherever he has ordained a place for you, stand there. Stay there. And serve them. 
you know, that'll help take out the spirit of discontent. When you stop looking at what you could have, but say, this is what God has given me to do, and I'm going to do it for the glory of God. I'm going to serve him right where he has placed me to serve him. And who knows, as you serve him there, he will move you here and there and all different places. That's the way God works. I was in the way the Lord led me. As the servant of Abraham said, being in the way, the Lord leads you and guides you and directs you and opens doors and closes doors. But wherever he puts you, you just stay there. You serve him. Stand fast in the Lord, Paul says. Don't waver. Just because everybody else is going a different direction. You stay where God put you. You just keep serving him where he put you. You just do it for the glory of God, however long he puts you there. And then finally, another way to break the spirit of unthankfulness and discontentment is discipline yourself to be a giver, not a taker. If you turn to Acts chapter 20, and this is the final reference we'll turn to this evening on this, we're close. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul has labored for many years in the city of Ephesus. And he calls the elders of Ephesus out to him some miles away. And those men are aware as they meet Paul for the very last time. They'll never see him again because he's on his way to the city of Rome and ultimately to martyrdom. Paul gathers those men together and he says to them, verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's where the blessing comes, being a giver, not a taker. You know, we live in a time where the whole clamor, isn't it, on the television, on the news. What will the government do? What's the government going to provide for this crisis and the next crisis? And even in the church, people come in and they say, what does this church give me and my family? People enter into a marriage now and they say, I'm here to see what I get out of the marriage. And the moment I don't get what I want, I'm out. I'm out of the church. I'm out of the marriage. I'm out of the job. I'm out of the the society because I'm a taker. But God's word turns it upside down. He says, no. The blessing of contentment comes not in receiving but in the giving. See the difference? And of course, why is it more blessed to give than to receive? Because when you become a giver, you become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You become more like God the Father, the one who is a giver. All the blessings and all the gifts that we receive come down from what? Above, from the Father of lights. 
the great verse that we all learn first in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave. Now when you become a giver of your time and your energy and your resources and your wealth to bless others, to help others, to pray for others, you become more like your Savior. That's where the blessing comes. And that will rip out that spirit of unhappiness and discontentment the more you become a giver. King David, as a boy, grew up on the hills of Bethlehem. He just had a few sheep to take care of. He was a nobody from nowhere. In fact, when old Samuel turned up at his house, old Jesse, his father, didn't even seem to know his name. He said, well, I've got seven or eight boys. And then there's a wee fella born late. Don't know his name. Hardly remember his name. He's way out in the hills. The old Samuel, he said, no, no, bring him. We won't sit down until he comes. David never forgot that he was a nobody and that God had given him everything. Later in life, when David looked back on the goodness of God to him through many hard days and difficult days, through trials and tribulations, life and death moments where he had to face the lion and the bear, where he had to face giants, where he had to go out and lead the armies of Saul, against the Philistines as just a young teenager leading grown men. As David looked back on his life, he wrote these words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, forget not all his benefits, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. What a statement. A man who never forgot the faithfulness of God. A man who was always thankful for the goodness of God. Many years ago, in the United States, a young boy was born into a log cabin home in Kentucky, the turn of the 19th century. His parents didn't have much. In fact, they had very little. He wasn't able to go to high school or university or as the Americans call it, college. But you know, God saved him. God called him to be a preacher. And he became a Methodist preacher in the United States. But you know, as he began to serve the Lord in that ministry, he was struck down by ill health. He had to retire from the ministry. And for many, many years, in fact, he was over 90 years of age when he died, he struggled financially, he struggled physically, just to survive, get through life. One day he was reading that passage that we read at the very beginning. From Lamentations chapter 3. And he said this. All my life I've never been wealthy. Never had good health. Never really achieved very much. In terms of what this world would say is 
worth achieving. But he says, all through my nine decades of life, God has been faithful to me. And he took a pen and a piece of paper and he wrote down these words. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Thomas Chisholm was his name. He proved God for over 90 years that God was faithful. And today his hymn is sung all around the world. Great is thy faithfulness. And this harvest season, make sure you leave here this evening with the song in your heart and in your mind, God is faithful. God is good. God is great. God is wise. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for this thy word this evening. We thank thee for the encouragement, but also even the correction. So often we come to the house of God like Hannah in bitterness of soul. We thank thee that when we come to the place of prayer, the house of prayer, we can find relief. We can find hope. We can find grace. Thy compassions, they feel not. Like old Jeremiah found, when you look up, you find hope. When you look to God, you find encouragement to go on another day, another week, another month, till Christ returns. We pray for each one here this evening. You know, you know thou knowest the needs, the problems, the fears, the sorrows, the griefs that so many carry. But Lord, we thank thee that we have the one here who can meet the need, Amen. who can speak words of wisdom. We have nothing to offer, but he has everything to offer. We thank thee that the great physician is here, who can heal body and mind and soul. We pray for any in our midst who are yet outside of Christ, who have grown cold in their walk with God, that you would speak especially to them, that you would minister thy convicting word to all of their lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And amen.